information against addiction and opioids. So stay tuned. Coming up, Bill Williams and this month's guest. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, information and awareness about the heroin and opiate epidemic. I'm Julie Pizal. The Kingfisher Project began in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Jean Pizal, who was shot and killed due to her heroin addiction. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Ogazalik, read an essay she wrote. It was about a bird, an injured kingfisher bird that she found and rescued when everyone else had given up on the bird. In that spirit, our community came together and formed the Kingfisher Project. Since 2014, we have been raising awareness about the drug and opiate crisis in our listening area and around the country, right here on Radio Catskill. Here is Bill Williams. Thank you, Julie. My guest this evening is Carrie Blakinger. Carrie is an investigative reporter based in Texas. She covers criminal justice and injustice for the Marshall Project and writes Inside Out, a regular column published in collaboration with NBC News. Carrie is also the author of her recently published memoir, Corrections in Inc. Before becoming a reporter, Carrie did prison time for a drug crime in New York. Welcome, Carrie. Hey, thanks for having me. Would you explain to our audience, would you mind, what is exactly the Marshall Project? The Marshall Project is a nonprofit news organization that focuses on criminal justice. Um, I usually liken us to being kind of like ProPublica, but just criminal justice. You're based in Texas, and am I correct? You constantly focus mostly on um, the Texas prison system. Is that correct? Well, I'm based in Texas, and um, I I cover prisons everywhere. I I mean, the Texas prison system is the second biggest in the country, so that one gets a lot of coverage. I also cover federal prisons some and occasionally write about um, issues in other states and sometimes write about um, non-prison issues that are sort of elsewhere in the realm of criminal justice. But, you know, the Marshall Project is national. It's not um, Texas-specific at all. Right. Do you ever deal with New York anymore? Uh, yeah, I do. I wrote, um, I think the last thing I did on New York was, um, maybe that was earlier this year, I did one on the the shock incarceration facilities there. Yeah, you mentioned those in the book as well. Um, yeah. Are, yeah. Are they still, uh, explain for our audience what a shock incarceration facility is, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on them, although I have an idea. Yeah, I mean, I was... Yeah, so the, so shock incarceration is um, it, it's sort of like a military style drug treatment, basically. Um, and I, I wrote about it some in the book because I thought I was going to end up potentially going to shock, but I'm you know glad that I didn't. But the basic idea is that you go complete a uh, six month drug treatment program. You know, you, if if you've been sentenced to prison time and you have a qualifying crime and you meet the other criteria to qualify then you can potentially complete a six-month drug treatment program. But it's a very specific kind of drug treatment program, and it involves a lot of, you know, running and working out and um, being yelled at by drill sergeants and, like, you know, walking and marching in formation and, you know, shoveling snow with spoons and cleaning floors with toothbrushes um, and that sort of thing. And a lot of the accounts of what it how it actually turns out is that there's sort of a lot of abusive name-calling um, and that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of treatment that seems more abusive than therapeutic. Um, I've interviewed people who've talked about, you know, 
like being pun- one one woman was punished, I think, for looking at the the men because there's men at the same facility, um, and she had to like run around a bush in a circle while other people threw shoes at her. Um, just just sort of ridiculous things that seem boldly not therapeutic. Um, and so these are some of the programs in New York are among the last in the country that are that model of um, you know of drug treatment in prisons at any rate. But the idea is that if you complete this six-month program, then you can get time shaved off your sentence. If you have three years or less left to serve, you can do this six-month program and go home afterwards. You can potentially go home two and a half years early if you're willing to put up with six months of abuse. And for many years, um, although this is changing some, you had to go off of any psychiatric medications in order to qualify for the program because the facility where they held shock did not have any psychiatric um, any psychiatric care. So they didn't give out psych meds. And if you were on them, you were considered too high security to go. So it created this sort of perverse incentive that, you know, you would have to go off antidepressants or medication for bipolar disorder um, in order to get home, you know, potentially two and a half years early. So, I mean, I think that's one of the many problems with, with that sort of model of treatment, aside from the fact that there's plenty of research showing that, you know, yelling at people is not therapeutic, although it probably shouldn't <laughs> require research to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you encountered or talked to many people that have actually uh, survived, for want of a better word, the program? Yeah, of course. I mean, I was in prison with, um, you know, people who had done shock in previous bids. And I, you know, was also encountering people who'd been kicked out of shock for various reasons. And in the course of my reporting on this, I interviewed two or three dozen people who went through the program, some of whom completed successfully and some of whom were, you know, quote unquote, recycled, meaning that you had to do it again, which I think is a really interesting um, term to choose because certainly, you know, recycling makes you think of trash, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and I also talked to some who successfully completed it. So yeah, I've, I, I've, I've either known personally as friends or talked to or interviewed, um, dozens of people who've been through the program and the stories are remarkably consistent. Um, some folks say that, you know, they got something out of it, that they learned some discipline, um, you know, but it's funny, one of the, in the last round of interviews I was doing for my last story on shock, um, one of the people who said that he'd gotten something out of it was, you know, he he was like very adamant that this had helped him, but he was, you know, using hard drugs again. He was, I think, he was doing heroin specifically. I don't, I don't remember. Um, and spent a large portion of the call ranting about how he wanted to kill someone, and um, and and that was really the most positive review I've ever heard of Shock. He's he's sort of the person who was most enthusiastic about it. Um, I found that when I was interviewing people, a lot of them would say, oh, yeah, you know, it, it I, I, I benefited from it. And then we'd sort of talk through, okay, well, and tell me more about what the treatment was and what you experienced. And, you know, they'd sort of come towards the end of the interview and be like, oh, wow, that actually was maybe not as helpful as I've <laughs> been thinking. And I think that, you know, that's I, it, it's an interesting phenomenon because I see that come with just how people view their prison time in general. I think that we all have an urge to ascribe meaning to our suffering, you know, to say that, oh, prison was the thing I needed or shock was the thing that saved me. 
when, um, you know, in fact, there might have been many other interventions that are far less damaging that would have had better outcomes. Um, but I, I think when you go through something so traumatic and, you know, that involves that sort of just, you know, personal suffering, there's really an urge to ascribe meaning to it that can sometimes um, add an interesting layer when you're trying to get to the root of something and report on it. Um, it, this reminds me, it brings up the notion of, and it's on, on the cover of your book, and it's uh, Piper Kerman. She says that, uh, that your book is a testament to where a woman can go after rock bottom. Um, I certainly think the book is a testament to what you've been through. Uh, I take exception to rock bottom. I would say that rock bottom is death and anything else is a serendipitous landing on an outcropping. How does that strike I think you? that's a really, I, I mean, I think we talked about this time in email. I think that's a really um, unproductive way to, to view it because it sort of minimizes anything less than death. I mean, I think that, you know, I think that people who are in addiction have a tendency to sort of compare how bad things got in an almost competitive way. And I don't think that um, saying nothing other than death is rock bottom is um, the best framework for people who are trying to think about at what point they need to change directions and at what point, you know, they, how, how they're going to define their recovery. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I don't like the framework of rock bottom to begin with because I think, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that needs to be the standard for when to change directions in your life. And I certainly don't think that saying like nothing other than dead is rock bottom is, um, I, I don't think that plays to the best, instincts for people who are struggling with addiction. Right. Um, any thoughts of a better way to express it? I mean, I don't think it needs to be competitive. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think there's a need to frame it as nothing but X is rock bottom. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I mean, I, I also think that for, for some people, I mean, some people would probably disagree that death is the worst thing. Yeah, so, um, I, I, I haven't thought of that. Um, I mean, I personally think that, you know, that uh, there's there certainly, I've gotten a glimpse of it from being in prison and solitary, and I can imagine that there are, you know, many places in life that, that seem worse. I mean, I, I right now am, you know, I spend a lot of time interviewing guys who are on death row. Um, some of them are there because of their addictions. You know, some of them killed someone while they were on drugs, you know? Um, and I mean, I, I, some of them have been in solitary confinement for decades. All of Texas death row has been in solitary for two plus decades. And, um, not all of them feel that that is worse than death, obviously, but, you know, a certain percentage of them give up all appeals because they would simply prefer to be dead. And that's not a sort of spur of the moment decision. It takes like months or years to successfully drop all your appeals and be, um, you know, be executed. So it's, it, you know, that's a sort of long-term evaluation that, you know, Texas death row solitary confinement for decades, you know, is something that some people after years determined is 
worse than what they think is, you know, what they think death will be like. So, yeah, I, I'm, I, I, I think that there's, that's not, to, you know, to go back to your original sort of question, that's just, I think that's not a framework that I would use. And I, I don't think that it needs to be a competitive framework in terms of uh, who, what's the worst bottom or um, what bottom means for any given person. Right. Well, this, um, you mentioned solitary, being in solitary. I believe, if I'm correct, it was in the Chenango County Jail when you got uh, boarded there for a while. It seems yeah. to me as I read the book that that, that solitary was a, a turning point for you. Is that a correct reading or um, not? Um, I, I mean, in in terms of, I I think that not in terms of like, did I want to change my you know change my life around and, and stay sober? I, I think that was a completely different thing. But in terms of, I think that one of the things I found in solitary was that I was surprised at how close I felt to completely losing my mind. Like I, you know, I, I obviously have struggled with mental health issues, but I've never felt um, so at the edge of being completely detached from reality. And that was frightening. And understanding that, you know, that that was even something I had in me, uh, I think that was certainly eye-opening. Um, but... I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not sure in, that I would, I, I, I don't, I guess I don't, it depends on what way you mean was it a turning point. <laughs> um, well, let me ask when, and it may not have, I'm not asking for a date or anything like that, but when was it that you actually, it seems to me, made a conscious decision or made a decision uh, to lead a sober life? Um, I mean, I, I don't think it was a single date. I think there was a few experiences in the first few months of my time behind bars when I just sort of realized that I did not want to be that person anymore. I was also at a point by the time I got arrested that, you know, I think any sort of any number of catalysts could have prompted me to change directions and stay sober. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, I don't know, rehab or even just, uh, you know, moving to another town, getting a job, sort of starting up a different life. I mean, I, I was at a point where I was very ready to be done with the life that I was living. And um, I think if I'd gotten arrested the year before, I would not have stayed sober because, you know, as I said in the book and as I've said in some of my reporting, there are plenty of drugs in jails and prisons. And when I was in prison, I could get heroin delivered to my bedside and even a needle if I wanted. So it wasn't a given that I was going to stay sober behind bars. And I think had it been a year earlier, I probably wouldn't have. But by the time I did get arrested, I happened to be at a point where I was ready to make a change. And I think that got solidified in some of the, you know, in the first few weeks and months behind bars. Uh, you know, one of the things was I remember there was one day somebody had smuggled in some something or other and people were, I think it was Suboxone, and, you know, people were, uh, you know, it, maybe it was something else. People were kind of out of it. And some of them had gone to wreck and a few had stayed back in the cell block and 
I was writing a letter and I looked up and I realized it was suddenly very quiet. And then I realized it's because everyone else who was there was high. And I was just so grateful to not be that person, to not be one of the people who was high and going to have to worry about where I was going to find drugs tomorrow or whether I was going to get in trouble or whether I felt guilty about it or who I owed money or who, how I was going to find money to get more. Um, and I was just so glad to, for once, be the one sober person in a room of people who were high instead of it being, you know, the other way around. And I think there's a few other incidents like that, but I, I, I'm not sure that there was like a single specific moment that I was like, oh, this is my, you know, moment of awakening. I, I, I don't think it always works like that. Right. Right. But it certainly seems like it was a period of awakening or. Um, yeah, sure. Okay. I'm talking with Carrie Blakinger, author of Corrections in Inc. We'll be back for more right after this break. This is the Kingfisher Project on the local edition. WJFF Radio Catskills annual music sale is Saturday, November 26th. The sale features records, stereo equipment, musical instruments, and CDs. But it's only possible because people like you donate vinyl LPs in good condition, working turntables, stereo equipment, and other gently used musical instruments. If you have something good you don't need anymore, donate it to the music sale. Email manager at wjffradio.org. Thanks. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of two Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Welcome back to the Kingfisher Project on The Local Edition. I'm Bill Williams, and my guest is Carrie Blakinger, author of Corrections in Inc. Picking up where we left off, Carrie, I just, uh, I'm fascinated by the availability of drugs in, in the system, is it, it seems so porous. I've been corresponding with somebody who's uh, incarcerated now, and uh, that person was able to talk about the possibility of relapsing once or twice, even though they was, you know, hoping to get into a CASAT program and all the rest of it. I, I'm, I'm naive. How, how do people, how does stuff get into prison? It's, it seems like it's just a sieve. Yeah, I mean, it varies a little bit by prison system. Um, I, I, you know, in, it, first of all, there's a lot more drugs and contraband in general in men's prisons than in women's. And part of that is because of the structures as to how drugs get in, in a lot of the states that I cover, gangs are one of the main, uh, one of the main ways that drugs get in because the gangs are able to have a structure in place to, you know, have multiple people involved in making sure everything sort of runs smoothly. And, you know, that usually involves paying off staff, you know, figuring out which staff they can get to do this, you know, um, sort of priming them to to become mules, as it were, um, and, you know, having a structure in place to pay them and then having structures in place to be selling the drugs inside the facility to make money, you know, to get more. And, I mean, same goes for contraband phones. The drugs are obviously easier for staff to actually get in the facility. Um, the contraband phones sometimes require some creativity if it's a facility with, you know, metal detectors or x-rays or whatever. Um, but if it's one without that, then it's just, you know, a risk of assuming that you're not going to be searched too thoroughly on your way into work. Um, but, you know, female prisons don't tend to have as many active gang members. 
And so they don't have that sort of structure for bringing in drugs. That's not to say there aren't any. Um, some individuals have, you know, are involved in relationships with staff or are, you know, paying off staff to bring in stuff. So it does happen. It just doesn't happen as much. Um, and at some male facilities, it's not coming in through the staff or it's not primarily. Sometimes there are creative ways of, you know, getting it in with shipments in the back gate, although I don't think that's generally the most common anymore. Um, and some of the low security facilities where prisoners have enough freedom to be able to walk around in yards or on, you know, potentially even climb up on roofs, then drone drops are um, are popular in some places. And then there's some places where you have enough prisoners who are going out into the free world as like, you know, work release or trustees or just because it's a low enough security facility that it's not too difficult to stray away a little bit. And in those cases, the prisoners can just bring in things themselves. So, you know, it varies. There's a number of ways these things come in. Wow. I said I was corresponding with an inmate in the New York system. And New York has just made a change where any items, food, books, items that used to be uh, that families could send in a package or what have you, Everything now has to be purchased through a, a, a prison vendor at a higher cost, I might add. Is that, do you know anything about that? Does that have anything to do with trying to reduce drugs getting into the I mean, system, or is it just a way for somebody to make some more money? I mean, I think that's typically the stated reason when facilities clamp down on mail, whether it's, you know, physical mail or cards or packages. You know, that's typically the stated reason. In in my experience, when I was inside, there was not a ton of drugs. That, I, I actually don't know of people who were getting, uh, you know, drugs in through packages, although I know that people would tell me how it could be done in theory, um, but that wasn't a thing that I was aware of actually happening among the people that I knew. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some amount of drugs that comes in that way. There's some amount of drugs that comes in pretty much anyway. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm not in the facilities that have made changes to try to clamp down on packages or mail. There's still plenty of drugs, but that doesn't solve the problem. It, it just ends up making prisoners' lives harder and um, the drugs still come in. Yeah. Um, let's go back a little bit. Uh, the title of your book, Corrections in Ink. I'm. Uh, I think that's one of the best book titles that I've come across in a long time, or 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 ever. Uh, who came up with it, and what did, do you have anything to say about it? It's a wonderful title. Um, thank you. My best friend came up with it. Actually, we were sitting around. I guess it must have been early in the pandemic, or maybe right before, and um, trying to figure out possible titles. And that was the initial title that I pitched when I pitched the book, and then you know, tried to think of a better one for quite a while and there was nothing everyone agreed on. So we ended up going with that. Um, I, my, my hesitation on it, the reason I didn't like it was because I thought it sounded like a tattoo memoir, which is fine, but not what my book is. Um, so my, my joke was that I was just going to spend enough of the book money on tattoos that the title seemed appropriate. And, um, I did that. I did, <laughs> I did get quite a bit of tattoos from this book. <laughs> Are those, <laughs> Well, I've seen photos of you. Um, are those the tattoos that you have? Are those mostly since uh, since the book? 
Um, my, I have most of my right leg done and that is since the book. And then I have a sleeve on my left arm and a lot of that is, I guess it was all done since the book, but it was one that I had scheduled like before the book was done. And I have some other ones on other, like, you know, on my back and neck that were not related to the book. Got it. You certainly you spent you spent a lot of time doing crosswords, I know, um, and those corrections were in ink because am I am I correct? The only thing you could use was a ballpoint pen. Yes, in the county jail, we could not have pencils. We had a little, uh, you know, we, we could get a blue bic, or maybe it was some knockoff brand uh, from a volunteer organization that would come in once a week, and you could get the security, the bendy security pens that are so hard to write with. Um, you can get those on the commissary. So you have two options of pens, one of which is basically unusable and pencils were not allowed and a whole variety of other pens was not allowed. So I did do, you know, my crosswords in pen, which meant that I was making corrections in ink. But obviously this is also just sort of playing on the idea of being a reporter and um, a writer and, you know, corrections as, you know, the correction system and, you know, corrections you make in your life. So, yeah, there was a number of meanings to that title. Well, they weren't lost on me, or I hope most of them weren't anyway. Um, <laughs> you you talk early about your, your skating career um, as a young woman. I'm curious, and I'd like to hear a little bit about that, but when is the last time you skated? Oh, geez, I don't know. I mean, I guess 2002, maybe. I think I might have been, I think I was coaching briefly when I was in college at Rutgers. So maybe a little bit in 2003 or four. Okay, well, that answers my next question then. So you don't do it, you don't do it for fun now? No, I do not. Um, is there, is there a reason that you've cut, cut, Cut skating out of your life, or or uh, is it too painful to yeah, go back I mean, to? Well, I mean, I just don't. Um, you know, for me, that was something that was very intense and sort of all-consuming. I trained. I would leave school every day at like ten a.m. and I would be at the rink until like six. And you know, that was sort of my entire life. It was not something that I would enjoy doing recreationally. I enjoyed doing it. Um, to excel at it, to to do it at a high elite level. I'm not. If I get on the ice now, um, I'm not going to be able to do triple jumps. You know, I can. My body can remember. I can remember what it felt like to be that good, to be you know, smooth enough and fast enough that you feel almost at one with the ice. You know, to be able to land triple jumps, um, to be able to feel like you're almost inside a piece of music when you're skating to it. And I prefer to just remember it that way instead of to be attempting to do it and, you know, being frustrated and struggling and being disappointed at the things that I can't do anymore. Um, I would rather remember, remember it as it is. Um, you know, it's almost like going back to an old lover. Like I can remember good memories in the past, but that doesn't mean I need to try to relive them. Right. Um, and aside from all that, I mean, I'm 38 now, and, uh, you know, I 
can't imagine. I, I, I feel like, honestly, I would have been in, my body would probably be even more beaten up if I had continued skating this entire time versus like doing drugs and then quitting skating. Like, like yeah. the drugs might have been uh, less bad for my body than the skating was to begin with. <laughs> um, so I, I think as a, as, at my age, I, I don't think that um, skating would, you know, even be a good idea in some ways. So when you you went, you didn't go directly, I guess, but you, you did go, kind of go from skating to drugs from one intensity. You switched one intensity to another. Yep, I did. I totally did. I, um, you know, I mean, drugs sort of filled the hole in my life where skating had been. You've been listening to Carrie Blakinger, author of Corrections in Ink, right here on the Kingfisher Project. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you all for joining us on Radio Catskill. Be sure to join us for part two of our discussion on November 1st, right here on the Kingfisher Project on the local edition. Kingfisher Project comes to us the first Tuesday of every month here on the local edition. Thank you so much to Bill Williams for making this happen, and thank you for listening. I'm Jason Dole. I'll be back tomorrow evening for more local edition. Up next, we got Mr. Kusar Grace of the Music Emporium. This is Radio Catskill. Support comes from Tavern on Main Bar and Restaurant in Jeffersonville. Comforting American fare in a cozy neighborhood atmosphere. Menus and takeout orders available online. TavernOnMainNY.com From the Narrowsburg Union, featuring information about regional attractions and activities, along with products by the region's artists, artisans, makers, and craftsmen at Catskills Curated. NarrowsburgUnion.com WJFF Radio Catskill, keeping you connected with national news, community interviews, and your favorite local shows. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskills.